you know, find the cause, the thing that's bothering you in your community and jump in. But to me, it's do get your own hands involved and your own feet involved, because if you do it just at a head level and you're not relationally connected, you know, the relational connections create the heart change that then allows us to create the next change. Welcome to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. If you're a fund manager, investor, or financial advisor driven by your faith or want to be driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected in the Faith Driven Investor community is to sign up for our newsletter at faithdriveninvestor.org. This podcast doesn't exist without you, our community. One of the things we've heard the community ask us for is help in finding great deals to invest in. And so we've launched Marketplace. It's a new platform of funds and direct deals. Everything from private equity and real estate funds to ETFs. From philanthropic to market rate deals spanning the U.S. and emerging markets. Check it out at faithdriveninvestor.org forward slash marketplace. While you're there, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you or any questions you have about being a faith-driven investor. All opinions expressed on this podcast, including the team and guests, are solely their opinions. Host and guest may maintain positions in the companies and securities discussed. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as specific investment advice for any individual or organization. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Faith Rivet Investor Podcast. We're so happy you're back with us once again this week. Today, we have a guest by the name of Jonathan Reckford. Jonathan is the CEO of Habitat for Humanity International. Before joining Habitat, Jonathan spent most of his career in leadership positions at Goldman Sachs, Marriott, the Walt Disney Company, and Best Buy. Since joining Habitat in 2005, Jonathan has grown Habitat from serving 125,000 individuals each year to helping more than 7 million people annually. It's no surprise why he was named the most influential nonprofit leader in America in 2017. Today, he serves on the board of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the World Economic Forum. Jonathan joins us today to share some of his story what God is doing in and through Habitat, and what it means to serve God at scale. Let's listen in. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Luke Roush. Luke, greetings. Welcome. It is great to be here. Great to be here. How are things in Nashville? Things in Nashville are lovely. What a great place to live. Come join us. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people are. You don't even need to issue that invitation anymore. we miss you out here. We miss you out here. We're grateful that we've got an incredible guest and a friend of both of ours and friend of Justin's too, as we've gotten to know Jonathan over the years at the Christian Economic Forum. So shout out to Chuck Bentley and his incredible leadership and bringing together a group of men and women just really committed to understanding how God is at work in the marketplace, the financial markets, and the, in the macroeconomic environment. And I've been looking for this episode in particular because, as I said before we went on air, this summer I had several different highlights, which were really cool. It's just great to emerge from COVID and spend time with friends and family. But there was a hike that I took with Jonathan before the events got started at the Christian Economic Farm that was super encouraging for me. And it was encouraging to me on multiple levels. One was a leader in the space that could challenge and encourage me. So it's great just to spend time with Jonathan Rickford just for that reason. But then there are two different things that really made an impact on me. Number one, we spent about half our time talking about what does it look like to be and to wrestle through being good fathers and how do we tend to the different needs of our children? 
And I hadn't expected to go on a hike with Jonathan Reckford and come away having been blessed in that area, but I most assuredly was. And then the second one was we spent some good time, not just talking about habitat, but the broader macroeconomic environment that he operates in, having been the CEO of Habitat for Humanity for a long time now, having served on the board of the Federal Reserve in Atlanta, and helping me to just understand just the larger societal challenges that impact poverty. And what does that look like? And the merger of NGOs and public policy and free enterprise, and just the kind of the bigger cocktail, if you will, that we found ourselves in, those of us who are on this podcast, caring about how we invest the assets that God has entrusted us with according to our faith. And in some ways that can be really simple in terms of being faithful and obedient and getting down on our knees and asking God to lead us. In other ways, it can be pretty complicated. And so when you find somebody like Jonathan, they can help you to navigate through that and make it less complicated. And to be clear, poverty is a complicated process. But whenever you get the chance to spend some time, whether it's on a hike in Colorado or on a podcast, like I hope that you all experience today, when somebody can help you to make sense of all of that in a way that might be actionable, that's a big deal. So that's what we're hoping to accomplish today. Jonathan, thank you very, very much for being with us. Thanks so much, Henry. It's great to be with you all. So we like to understand everybody's story that comes on the podcast. And there's a lot, of course, to you and who you are. And I know a bit about the fact that you grew up in one of the greatest towns in the world. So why don't you share a little bit about your background and your time before Habitat and before the Federal Reserve, please. So thank you. And great to be with all of you uh, more broadly. I, my story, I would break it maybe two parts. One, the, the family side and how I got launched and, and then a very unlikely career that just shows that God has a sense of humor, I think. But in one, now I can look back and see how all those pieces were useful, even if my career didn't make sense in some parts along the way. I grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is a spectacular place to grow up. Yes, my father is. was a classics professor at UNC, now retired. And I was the fourth of five kids. And it really was a special place to grow up. Did a, a brief stint in England, which was very formative and for second grade uh, when he was on sabbatical. And that probably first opened my eyes to a bigger world in a new way. And, and I was blessed with a couple of really powerful role models beyond my immediate family. My grandmother uh, was a quite iconoclastic and formidable woman. Her name was Millicent Fenwick, and she was one of the relatively small number of women in the U.S. Congress uh, in the 70s. And she was a civil rights pioneer and ferocious fighter for human rights. And some uh, people know the comic strip Doonesbury. She became famous because Gary Trudeau created his character Lacey Davenport after her in the comic strip. But oh, almost cool. every time I saw her as a kid, every summer and Christmas, she would cite Micah 6.8. And he has shown you, a man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And then she would ask us what we were going to do to be useful. And her view of the good life is we're supposed to be useful. And it took me a, a long time to live into that. And my other real role model is my godmother, who was an extraordinary path-breaking woman as well, an Australian, who was the first woman president of Smith College and ended up through just talent, uh, becoming lead director of Merrill Lynch, Nike, Colgate, Palmolive, and the executive chair of Len Lease Corp in Australia. So had along with all sorts of nonprofit and writing best-selling books. And she had that incredible ability to be so gifted and yet fully present, which I found quite amazing and really tried to emulate her. And I missed, she was my kind of go-to person for career advice all the way along. So was launched with that. 
on the career side, I was going to go to law school and go into politics because I, that was I was really passionate about and came to the shocking realization as a senior in college that I was only going to law school because I thought that's what you did to go into politics. And I had no actual interest in being a lawyer. So had to quickly find something else to do. And I'm not sure I would advise this from a career perspective, but as a political science and English major, talked my way into a job in corporate finance at Goldman Sachs with the hubris that I could learn finance faster than they could teach other people to communicate. And then I suffered mightily for that for a couple of years. And it was a great education and including the learning that I probably wasn't cut out to be an investment banker. But it was also probably the low point for me in many ways from a personal perspective, because I wasn't leading a life that in any way really seemed to line up with who I was hoping to become. I was working all the time and in some ways acting out. And I think that period made me think I needed to readjust. And the first big inflection point for me was then I, instead of going on to grad school uh, and I'd become interested in business at this point, I applied for a bunch of things and was lucky enough to get a grant from the Henry Luce Foundation to work for a year in Asia. And Luce's parents were missionaries in China. He was the founder of Time Magazine and created and still sponsors 15 young Americans from all different fields every year to go work in Asia. And I was a huge sports fan and Korea was going to host the Olympics. So lined up and I was able to go over with Goldman, who was going to finance the first convertible equity offering for a Korean company. And I worked on that deal and then set up a job working for the Olympic Organizing Committee doing marketing. And then in a giant twist, they told me because they were the host country and qualified that they had just fired their rowing coach. They saw this rowing in my background and wondered if I would come and help coach their rowing team. And I told them I was completely unqualified. And they said, no, we're really serious about this. So I quit Goldman early and went to the U.S. Rowing Coaching College. And if you sort of think Jamaican bobsled team, it would give you a, you know, they, they were not uh, globally competitive, but the U.S. coaches were not intimidated and loaded me up. And the important part of that story is I spent the year living in the training camp with all the Korean coaches and athletes. And I, you know, in a pre-internet, pre-digital age, it could not have been a more complete immersion and removal from anything that was familiar for me. And that was the year I really got serious about faith. I'd grown up in a non-traditional but devout Catholic family and had never walked away from my faith, but never really owned it. And that year in Korea, God put the right person in my life. There were two of us of the 15 of us spread across Asia. The other person in Korea and the only non-Korean I would see was my lifelong friend, Jim Peterson, who was an American Baptist pastor and had just finished his PhD in the ethics of genetic engineering and just a brilliant scholar. And he was that person who could both go as deep intellectually, but also had the kind of the Holy Spirit flowing through him. And I had met people who had one or the other. And I think he gave me the extraordinary gift of every Monday night for the rest of that year. And we went through systematic theology and the whole New Testament together. And it was really, I had such a high bar of not wanting to be a hypocrite, but it was through that process that I gradually got to the point where I could take that leap and make a full adult commitment to my faith. And, and that really changed everything. So came back and went to Stanford Business School because Stanford was one of the only business schools back then that believed we needed professional management of nonprofits. And I was intrigued with the idea of, at that point, I actually wanted to go be Peter Uberoth and run the Olympics, but I wanted to find a mission that really mattered. And in business school, which is less true today than it was then, thought I should go to the private sector first, learn the skills, and then port those skills over once I find the right mission. And what really intrigued me was strategy and how do you grow organizations? And I know many in this audience are people who are true startups. I got interested in how do you start new things within big companies? 
So I went to Marriott Corporation first and worked on two new businesses for them. And then actually got laid off in the SNL crisis, went to the Walt Disney Company and got to work on a couple of big successes and one spectacular failure leading strategic planning for their real estate-based entertainment, and then was recruited to a company called Circuit City. Before you move on for there, everybody's a Disney fan. And I know that you hired one of our great friends and partners at Sovereign's Capital as an Imagineer, Michael Tremaine. But before you go in there, so two things. Uh, how did the Koreans do? Did, did so they do better in the Olympics? They <laughs> did not do very well in the Olympics, but we beat the Japanese, which there you go. this context was, uh, was a huge deal. <laughs> right. All right, great. What'd you work on at Disney? So at Disney, I worked on their urban entertainment and something called the Disney Vacation Club, which was Disney's timeshare yeah. strategy, which has become a large and very successful business. And then worked on, uh, this is a whole podcast in itself or a book someday, but a project called Disney's America, which was going to be a new urban entertainment concept that then turned into a history-based theme park in Northern Virginia, which then um, drew the ire of the Washington Post and uh, turned into a huge mess and ultimately got canceled. So that's a whole story in itself. But the, uh, the original idea actually evolved in a couple of other businesses, which was how could Disney bring entertainment to kind of urban areas in addition to its theme park strategy? Gotcha. And then downtown Disney ended up being a pretty good success. So I think you should take credit for that. It is. Uh, well, I certainly don't. And then there were projects like the Town of Celebration, yeah. which is actually Disney's first residential community trying to live a little closer. Uh, and that was actually very much tied to their actually their highway and road improvement strategy. So there's a whole build out of the giant Disney complex. But I loved mm. living there and working there. The theme park side was very pixie dust. Movie studio side, a little more sharp elbowed, but... Mm. Okay, so go on. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. So Circuit City. No, I was giving you a long story. So Circuit City was starting something called CarMax, and I was just fascinated by that. And they were going to disrupt the whole way cars were being sold and sort of solve the conundrum of the lemon law and used car sales. So I went to and became head of strategy for Circuit City. And now my business credibility will be shot because, uh, of course, CarMax has done great. Circuit City is no longer around. And my hope was actually to start the next CarMax after we took it public. And then if people read Jim Collins, my old business school professor, Circuit City is the only company that was in both good to great and how the mighty fall. So it, it became a <laughs> cautionary tale. And at that point, when I joined, they were, you know, had been the top stock on the New York Stock Exchange for the, you know, a 10 year period and had really redefined big box retailing. But retail is a tough area. And if you don't re-redefine, you can still get challenged. And I was then recruited. I really wanted to move from strategy into an operating role and had the the opportunity to be president of another now sadly dead retailer called Musicland. And some of you listeners on may be old enough to remember going to the mall to buy music or movies. And back then, Musicland had Sam Goody and Suncoast Video and two other chains and was the largest specialty retailer of music and movies. And I always loved the entertainment world. And clearly, they had a huge challenge because the internet was coming. And what I didn't plan on, though we had, had grown the business, is then Best Buy bought it. And I'll fast forward. That was in 2002. And it was clearly the right thing for the business to sell. It turned out to be a flawed acquisition. I stayed for a year to help make it work and then had one of those you know, tough calls as uh, do I stay or do I go? And as my wife and I prayed about it, it just felt clear. I'd already stayed in the private sector longer than I'd ever planned. And this led to a decision to leave. And I usually recommend don't leave if you don't know what you're going to do next. But we just took the leap with a big non-compete clause and some protection. And 
the next big inflection point in a way was that next period, because with my wife's blessing, I finally did something I'd want to do. I went off on a short-term mission trip to India to serve with a group of Presbyterian pastors in rural India. And it was one of those next moments where I think all those latent issues of social justice came roaring back where um, we were serving with the Bungi, which among the Dalits or the outcasts in India and rural areas, this is at the absolute kind of lowest social tier in society where they're literally only allowed to hand clean latrines or clean up dead animals. And at that time, about half the children were dying before their 13th birthday because of the conditions they were living in. So Jonathan, were you by yourself on this trip or did I was did your kids uh, by myself, but with a group of, I think gotcha. 12 or 13 other, I was but no kids, no family. No, no family on this trip. Actually, my kids were too small. They would have been, it would have been overwhelming. I think at that age for them, though, they have since been on many trips with me. And so I really had um, the, fa- the pastor who founded Habitat or came up with the idea of Habitat for Humanity had this uh, phrase, a divine irritation. But it's that idea that, you know, we're all so good at seeing problems in our world and thinking someone ought to do something. Um, but I think that moment of divine irritation is where God grabs you by the scruff of the neck and the response is, I have to do something. And I just came back from that trip with a deep sense of upset around poverty issues and how to engage and turn down a couple of really good business jobs thinking, okay, I've got my deal with God now and almost got a couple of nonprofit jobs with international nonprofits. And in both cases, I got to the finals and then they picked someone who'd already run a nonprofit, which was completely logical. And I was like, God, we had a deal. And suddenly all the doors closed and nothing was opening. And what I really learned in that, what turned into quite a waiting period is one, it was spectacular for my family and less spectacular for my ego, but in a really good way. And two, if I'm really honest, which is a little embarrassing, my deal was, God, I'll do anything you want as long as it meets my geographic time, you know, financial and uh, social gratification and all my other Good needs. deal. Cutting the deal. Yeah. Cutting the deal. And what I had to, you know, as imperfectly as I could get there, move towards, okay, God, no conditions, you know, as best able, I will, I will follow where you lead. And that, to my great surprise, led to my local church asking me to be the administrative or executive pastor which was not at all what I was looking to do. And all my friends who I trusted for career advice said not to, but Ashley and I really had a sense of that this was a a call and we should be obedient to it. And this is, you know, such a nice God part in retrospect, accepted the job, uh, almost immediately got a call from one of the big headhunting firms with a a great opportunity to uh, run an internet retailer. And I remember just telling the search partner, gosh, that sounds like a great job. I'm going to go work for my local church. And I thought, I am exiting the market and will be blacklisted forever. And two years later, when I was happily working at the church and not looking, she was the partner leading the Habitat search who called up out of the blue and said, Jonathan, do you know anybody who'd be interested in Habitat for Humanity? And if I went back to that list with God, it checked every single thing on the list. And I never thought they would hire me, but wrote this very passionate letter saying, I think this is the kind of thing God has been preparing me for all this time. So that was 2005. And as you can tell, I could never keep a job, but this is, um, it has been a a challenge, but an incredible joy to be part of this mission since then. So how do you think, one of the things we talk a lot about in the context of Christian economic form is human flourishing. And what does it look like for human flourishing to exist? Maybe speak a little bit just about housing and the role that plays in individual security, community, maybe just speak to that a little bit. You know, I've, I've had a chance to learn so much, Luke, about housing. And, you know, I came with a lens not to solve housing, but a lens to think, how do you solve poverty? And certainly what, you know, I have experienced and then seen all around the world 
is housing is clearly not the only thing, but in some ways it's a prerequisite. So if you think about after food and water, shelter is almost the, you know, the most basic level of need. And what we know from the data is if people, uh, you know, a child grows up in good housing, she stays healthier, she does better in school, and then is in a position to lift herself up over time. If you pull housing out of that equation, it's extraordinarily unlikely that someone can both stay healthy and be educated. And so in many ways, we think of it as a prerequisite almost for all the other things we want in life. But if you think about it, we certainly recognize that housing is only one component and people need all the elements of a healthy community. So they need access to food and fresh water. They need, of course, employment and the ability to earn income. They need health. They need education. Um, so they're all interconnected and none of them by themselves. One challenge sometimes in the nonprofit world is we all say, well, if we just solve housing, everything will be perfect. And I think the reality is, no, we have to actually partner in ways that create the conditions so that we can meet all the needs of a healthy and sustainable community. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you think about, so we've dabbled as an investor in the kind of real estate technology and sort of different ways to reimagine home ownership and trying to broaden access, but uh, maybe just speak a little bit about some of the efforts, whether it's Terwilliger Center or kind of other things that Habitat has done to really actually be a first mover in terms of real estate technology and innovative models to uh, change the system and how homes are owned. Well, what, you know, I think the giant realization, and when I joined in 05, it was an interesting, uh, it was not certainly part of my plan, but we had the Indian Ocean tsunami, this massive, you know, regional disaster in Asia. And then we had Hurricane Katrina hit literally the week I was joining, which was a massive U.S. disaster in terms of housing. And in both cases, it forced us to start thinking about scale in different ways. And Habitat had gone really wide, 103 countries. And we had, at that point, 1,800 US chapters or affiliates. But we were building a very small number of houses in all those places. And so the question, our, in some ways, our core metric had been, how many houses can we build? And that's a really good, it's a good metric. But we flipped it to say, what would it actually take to meaningfully reduce the housing deficit in all the geographies that we serve? And that's a much more scary question, but forces you into systems thinking and a little bit to what, what Henry talked about at the opening, because in many ways, then you have to look at the whole housing value chain and think about how do you create the conditions so that markets would actually work for low-income families. And I would argue we started primarily outside the U.S. in low- and middle-income contexts. Right now, you can clearly make the case in the U.S. that the market is failing because we can't produce enough housing for low- and moderate-income families in this country either. So that started us down a journey. And the first place was really policy. And especially in the international context, we take for granted in the U.S. that you have property rights. You can get title to, you know, to your house or title to a piece of property. In much of the world, especially women in marginalized groups, can struggle to have legal right to stay on their property. And if you don't have the right to stay on your land, it doesn't really make sense to take a loan out. It doesn't make sense to take risk to upgrade. So we've created a global advocacy campaign called Solid Ground all around property rights. And give you a, you know, a quick example, one of my favorite stories in Bolivia, women didn't have the right to own land. And if you think about inheritance, divorce, abuse, all the different things that can happen if you have no right. And so we trained an incredibly impressive cadre of Bolivian women, and they not only successfully got titled to their own land, they got the federal law changed. So if a man is married and wants to register either his land or his home, it has to be joint titled with his wife. So that, that would be an example of changing the enabling environment. Now, the next step is, can we help those 1.8 million women in Bolivia who now were enabled to be property owners to actually become property owners? And we would count that 
in a next layer. But so the first step is, can we ensure property rights and good housing policy? Next layer was, how do we increase access to finance? And what we found is banks in most low and moderate income countries would only lend to the top 5% of the population who actually had both income and property and were viewed as a credit risk. But there was a huge unmet need. So we started with a bet that the microfinance industry, there could be a business in making small home improvement loans to very low income families. And we started lending our own capital and training microfinance banks to do home lending and then working in the communities with the recipients of those loans. That worked so well, we actually created a wholesale fund called Microbuild. We raised $100 million first time we took on debt. And we started lending that out as a wholesale lender. And that fund is now getting closer to wrapping up now, but we have directly helped over a million people get loans. And then with add-on capital, it's now helped uh, approaching 10 million people get housing finance. And so we have demonstrated, which was the real goal, that there's a market opportunity for housing lending. And then the next step going down that housing value chain was, could we impact services and products? And we created under this umbrella of our Terwilliger Center for Innovation and Shelter, a shelter venture fund, small scale, and shelter tech accelerators, where we're investing with and alongside entrepreneurs around the world who are coming up with better building products for very low-income families. And then in some cases, they can actually test their markets with Habitat in terms of we can be a buyer and a test market for them. In other cases, we're creating cohorts to help them grow or scale their businesses because that would improve the access to good products for the families we're trying to serve. And then the last step has been around skilled trades and how do we increase access and validate quality trades in the community. So the goal would be, if we did this successfully, that all the conditions for healthy market would exist, where in some ways we could pull back and families can improve their own housing, which can scale. You know, that's how we've moved from helping tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions of families. But we know the need is still far greater. So that's super motivating on a bunch of different levels. One of them is that presumably at the outset of Habitat for Humanity, there was a desire to address the felt need of more affordable housing in partnership with the families. And there's so much about the Habitat model that we've come to know. The, the families have real skin in the game, they labor, and it's just a great opportunity to partner with local church. So we've understood that. And that's one of the things that I learned on this hike that really just really changed my my context, my framework of, about the space. I had thought that Habitat was known for the 50 houses that it built in Durham, which is for those 50 families is a very big deal to be very clear. But we had talked about the fact that Durham was short 14,000 housing stock. And what you've been able to look at, let's look at the problem that we're trying to solve here. And at the beginning, it was, let's get affordable housing. We'll do it by building houses. But then under your leadership, you're able to say, what's the bigger picture here? And are we ever going to be able to make a big enough splash through the tactic that we have of building houses? And let's take a step back and understand what the broader mission and vision is and some of the other things we can do in addition to building houses. And so I thought that was great. And whenever an executive director of a ministry comes up and talks less about their programs, but more about why they're doing what they're doing and the larger systemic issues, I dial in. I think that that's awesome. That's the type of ministry partner I get really fired up about. And then after coming out of that, you've been able to provide us all with a framework that starts off with policy and talking about home ownership and talking about title. Then you talk about finance, then you talk about innovation, and then you talk about increasing access to skilled trades. And in none of those did you actually talk about building houses, but that's how you've gone from serving 10,000 families. And to be clear, 
all those 10,000 families have had lives changed and transformed, but how you're able to go ahead and look at the global issues, that's super motivating and encouraging. I love all of that. Talk about- uh, Henry, yeah, The one please. piece I left out, which I hope many of your listeners, and if you haven't, you should, uh, is the volunteer piece. And COVID has really gotten in the way of some of that. But mm. one lens that went with that, that sort of circles the loop, is we want to engage the huge number of volunteers with Habitat in some ways, not as a construction strategy, but as a social change strategy. And mm -hmm. so if you put that together, and the reason we want people to come out and volunteer is when they come out, in some cases, it's the first time they've actually had meaningful interaction with somebody outside their socioeconomic class in a relationship, and it helps them to understand and experience the mission in a way so that hopefully they will then become the people who are willing to change those local zoning laws. They're willing to actually get engaged in thinking about housing differently. So if you then do the full circle, if we can change hearts and minds so that we can change policies, so markets can work better, so Habitat and other houses can build more houses, in our case, then we can engage more volunteers who hopefully then keep making that change happen. Yeah, that's powerful. So if I'm listening to this in Memphis, Tennessee, or Eugene, Oregon, or Billings, Montana, and I'm just impacted by food, water, and then shelter, and I'm just really drawn to the shelter part, what are some tangible next steps about getting involved? What can people do? Maybe a good point of entry is to volunteer and, and to see how Habitat does it. But talk to us a little bit more about bridging that gap of getting people in the game, advocating for policy change. And I love the fact that you know Luke comes at this. Luke is you know public policy guy out of Duke. And so this is right up your alley too. But public policy seems like it's so politics is just hard to just even get your arms around. How do you advocate for that? And yet, some of that public policy change will do more than if you volunteered at, you know, building a hundred houses. So how do you get involved? I think it's a both and. And of course we want everyone to come help with Habitat. So that goes without saying, but the reality is not everybody should help Habitat. Help, you know, find the cause, the thing that's bothering you and your community and jump in. But to me, it's do get your own hands involved and your own feet involved. Because if you do it just at a head level and you're not relationally connected, you know, the relational connections create the heart change that then allows us to create the next change. And I would say, sadly, all across America, so I'll talk U.S. context now, what we have moved from is historically mixed income communities to economically and sometimes racially segregated communities. And economic segregation is creating an outcome that your zip code, to some extent, determines your economic future. Because what we know is that mixed income communities create the best outcomes actually for everybody, but particularly for historically disadvantaged groups or, or low income families. And so, you know, a great example, my beloved hometown, and actually just happened last week, so very fresh example. When I grew up, if you worked for the university, you could live in the town. That's not true anymore. Really, only the business school and medical school professors or tech entrepreneurs can live in town. Everyone else has to live outside Chapel Hill. So it's no longer, you know, in the when I went to Catholic church growing up, anybody who was Catholic, so the church had blue collar and white collar doctors and business people and academics all in community together. Not true anymore because only upper middle class people can live and therefore are the ones who are worshiping together. And then what has happened is sadly, this is not a Democrat or Republican thing. Human nature is once you're a homeowner, you want to protect your major investment. And so not in my backyard or NIMBYism is such a big deal. And the brand of affordable housing is so broken. So that was a long way of getting to your question, which is what we really need are people of goodwill and churches and people of faith should be at the front of this, which is how do we create inclusive communities 
where you do have mixed income and where there is a path of opportunity for folks. And in Chapel Hill, actually, I got to do the groundbreaking last weekend of an amazing mixed income community. And I'm so excited, but it took almost 19 years to get done because of community resistance. And so they were going to give up after 15 years of being rejected for being allowed to use it for Habitat Homes. They actually expanded their vision, which was a, a step in faith, bought more land, and last week, we broke ground on a community that is going to be 101 habitat homes and another 150 market rate, uh, affordable market rate condos and houses. And it's going to be a spectacular community. But it's a good example. It couldn't happen unless you got both city council and the mayor and private sector leaders and the university, everybody had to kind of come to the table to get that passed. And that's where I think if people can first kind of get skin in the game and then translate that into being willing to talk to their neighbors and actually create some of that change, those two can go together. Is there a central resource also? So I love that example. I love the new expression, NIMBYism. I'll use it three more times today. I may or may not give you credit. Is there another resource also that once you go ahead and you done the, the hard side, you've, you've rolled up your sleeves and you've actually worked and you've gotten to know a little bit. Are there resources, are there blogs, are there podcasts that kind of explore the housing situation and where people can learn more about this? Yeah. yeah. Or, or funds or people who have kind of made a name for themselves, either through the investments they've made or uh, the strategies they've employed. Just love to get your sense Yeah, um, several different things. So, you know, a shortcut, we actually through COVID have been doing a campaign called Homes, Community, Hopes, and You. And we've done a series of episodes. So you can go to Habitat.org and each one is tackling a different element. So the last one I did was with our new HUD secretary talking about some of these issues. Before that, we had one focused on housing and race and some of the historical issues there. We did one on economic models for housing, innovations in housing. So those are some accessible kind of shorter versions Actually, one of my dear friends and heroes, Ron Twilliger, who is the, you know, the founding donor behind our Twilliger Center, has also created a bipartisan center for housing at the Bipartisan Policy Center. And that's a good source. There is the Urban Land Institute. There are a number of places that, you know, where there is, is good information around housing and housing policy, certainly the National Housing Conference, of which we are a member you know, and there's federal level housing policy, but a lot of it is still local. And yeah. in some ways, the fundamental thing, which is, I love this audience, is we have a supply problem. So the real question is, how do you change the market conditions such that we can actually build way more houses? We've been underbuilding ever since the Great Recession. And that means we now have a cumulative gap of four to five million units of housing. So one of the sessions actually I really enjoyed was what would it take to build 10 million houses in the United States? And we had the, the president of the Atlanta Fed and we had the head of the National Housing Conference and we had the chief economist from the Mortgage Bankers Association. And that was a great conversation because, you know, what would it take to do a step change level of increasing supply? And in some ways, we've got to think at that level from a, a federal perspective. But at the local level in your community, same question, what would it take from a multi-sector approach to make it possible to build enough housing for everybody in that community and make the math work. And the reality from a public policy perspective is that will take some subsidy in either land or financing. So 10 million units is a lot. How many years of sort of, you know, pedal down work is that to actually dig out of that hole? That we're yeah. Creating? So we're building, depending on the month and year, you know, we were building between 700,000 and 1.4 million units a year as a country. So that gives you a sense that, you know, we've got to significantly increase our build rate to catch up because we are, if you assume any kind of growth in households, 
you've got a little bit of COVID distortion, but COVID's actually made it worse because suddenly everybody wanted more living space. And so it's actually exacerbated the problem because incomes haven't gone up nearly as fast as housing prices. And that's part of that supply imbalance problem. Well, and you've got a whipsaw problem on materials too. And huge supply chain issues. Lumber has just exploded, but many other items have slowed down and skilled labor is scarce. So you're getting squeezed on kind of all the key inputs. So you talk about that. So the last two areas of your framework, having added volunteers into it as well, but were innovation and increasing access to the skilled trades. Can you talk a little bit about both of them? So you have a fund, you alluded to it. You said you got a fund that invests in innovations and building better building products. Can you talk a little bit about that before you get into the work that you're doing and increasing the amount of skilled trades people that come in? But tell us yeah. about running a fund. So that has been quite a learning experience. And we're actually exploring two additional funds. So we actually hired a fund manager. So in this case, we use a group called Triple Jump from the Netherlands because we didn't have experience being a fund manager, though we control the investment committee, but they do the vetting of the potential microfinance banks or and organizations that are borrowing from us against our criteria. And then we're looking at a larger fund that would continue to do housing microfinance, but also look at potentially micro mortgages and some larger scale loans as well and a little bit bigger scope. So we're just finishing the feasibility. And we're actually doing our feasibility for our first ever US-focused fund around a housing opportunity fund to help Habitat affiliates, but also other housing nonprofits to be able to acquire property. Because there's a little bit of a gap today in the ability to, the private sector can move so fast to grab property that nonprofits are often at a big disadvantage. So we want to bring some more capital to that space. And again, we're doing feasibility work there. Some examples outside the US of the kind of, we just made an investment in a company called Tvasta, T-V-A-S-T-A in India, and they are building 3D printed houses in India. So we just built the first 3D printed home in India. And we think there's an interesting growth opportunity there. There's another company also India-based that I think is really interesting. They have a great waterproofing technology that a lot of people are living in concrete homes with flat roofs. And there's a huge cost if they get leaks, obviously quality of life and health issues, but also it degrades the quality of the home over time. So it's a relatively low cost treatment that extends the life of that home significantly and improves the quality of life for the family in terms of livability. A third example is a company in Africa, in multiple countries now, but started in Rwanda that is called Earthenable. And they have found a process for sealing earth floors to give them the health benefits of a cement or concrete floor. And so by compacting and then sealing it, it helps with many of the health benefits. There's a huge health benefit for a family to have a proper or hard floor. And this for a fraction of the price allows a family to get those benefits for a much smaller piece. So those are examples of, we also have a clean cook stove investment that's rolling out very quickly in Africa. And because indoor air quality is such a big issue, even though it's a, you could say it's a little peripheral to housing, but if you're cooking with kerosene indoors or charcoal, even worse, the health and air quality is so bad. So if we can actually lower costs for the family and improve their air quality, that's a, that's a significant quality of life. But those are all private sector investments. And our thesis actually is the private sector can scale those things faster. And they're actually coming with solutions that are meaningful for those low-income families and the communities we serve. One last question, and then we'll wrap. But uh, 60 seconds or less, how do you see Habitat partnering with the local church? Is there anything to be done there? Yeah, speak to that maybe. You know, the church has been so much at the core of Habitat, and it goes in some ways, uh, a wise person said a long time ago, there are problems you solve and tensions you manage. 
And how do we keep that grassroots faith side and have the benefits of scale? Because as we move towards market-based solutions, private sector actors, public policy, you lose that incarnational personal relationship on the ground in the community. And I think that's where the church really comes in in a powerful way. And my hope is, you know, Habitat literally started in church basements all over the country and world. And my hope in some ways now is that we can be a servant back to the church, because I think in our increasingly unchurched world, I think the face of the church has got to be come serve with me, creating the credibility for a spiritual friendship that can then lead to come worship with me. And I think finding so if we can be a vehicle for churches to express in a very tangible way in the community, their faith and build relationship. I hope that. Uh, but for me personally, that's a huge value because it is, I think, one of the, the other tensions we want to live in is can we be Christ centered and radically inclusive? And some people today would say you have to pick one. We are fully committed to both ends of that. But there are tensions that come with that. Okay, so we got to keep going on that topic, though, because that's actually the most interesting conversation that I had this year at the Christian Economic Forum is what you just said. So I I know we got another call coming here, but this is really important. Maybe speak a little bit more to what you just mentioned in terms of radical inclusion, but also Christ-centered. How do you navigate that leading an organization as diverse and as broad as Habitat? You know, our board is actually going to be talking about it in a couple of weeks, and it's something that I don't think you ever solve that that we have to hold up that it, the you know the front of our mission statement is putting God's love into action the center is bringing people together and in ways those reflect those two pieces so at our best I think about when I was in Indonesia in Bande Aceh after the tsunami one of the saddest places I've ever been context was there was a civil war Christians were not allowed into Aceh and we had a habitat team from both the region and Habitat Indonesia that was part Christian part Muslim. And I heard one of the comments, and Habitat is a Christian ministry, and one of the comments from one of the families when we were visiting with them was, and obviously among all the heartbreak that they had rebuilt now, they were starting to put together, and they said, you know, we may not share their faith, but we're so glad they're here. Those Christians helped us, you know, rebuild our community. You know, I think God can do a lot with that. And sometimes, you know, what our call is, is to show up with the serving towel and just love people and have faith from that. But it is tricky in today's environment. And I think the biggest, if the framing is you have to pick one, it's all over because we will tilt towards inclusion and end up drifting, I think, from the center. We would actually reframe that to say we are inclusive because of our faith. Jesus modeled inclusion and God loves every child in this world. And in fact, the greatest love you or I have for anyone that we know is a pale shadow of God's love for every child. So that's the moral call to inclusion. It's the reflection of our faith and and our call. Okay. That was gold. That was awesome. Jonathan, I'm so grateful for you and your friendship and your partnership and your leadership and being at the front end, the pointy end of the spear of a really global organization that's doing things at scale, serving at the highest levels of government with the work that you're doing with Federal Reserve, speaking into small communities and large ones, and yet being able to point back to your foundational faith and trying to understand not just like, well, I go to church on Sundays and then, you know, I do Habitat and we just, we've got to err on the radical inclusion side, but fighting that fight and just being able to point back to the most inclusive, exclusive religion of all time, the inclusive story of Jesus Christ. So that was awesome. Thank you. Is there something that you're hearing? One of the things we ask for every one of our guests is on either a Faith Driven Entrepreneur podcast or a Faith Driven Investor podcast. 
is, is there something that you're hearing from God through his word? And it doesn't need to be this morning. It could be over the course of last week, last couple of months, but something that you feel that he's speaking to you about through his word. You know, thank you. Thank you for that opportunity. I was actually reflecting, I gave devotions. We have a virtual leadership conference going on this week with all of our board chairs and national directors from across Latin America and the Caribbean. And I was giving devotions on Monday night and and talked about the idea of waiting on the Lord. And the aha, and it reminded me of a conversation we'd had uh, many years back with a group of theologians. And often in my mental model, waiting on the Lord is sequestering myself and having time to go deep and listen. And that's really important. But this was a little bit of a twist on that idea of wait on the Lord, which is we should actually put our serving towel on and go serve the Lord. So it's actually turning that around. Do, can we wait like a, a restaurant server on the Lord? And how do we, as we're trying to hear God's voice, do that in faith? And it, it reminded me certainly of which we need for the COVID time of you know the message Joshua heard over and over again of be strong and courageous. The Lord your God will be with you. And then I'm struck by that moment where finally, after 40 years, they're going to cross into the promised land. And the Jordan, not the trickle it is today, is this rushing river. And they had to actually step into the water, into the storm, and then God stilled the water and they were able to cross into the promised land. And so I think combining that idea of wait on the Lord with how do we keep stepping out into faith in the middle of the rushing rivers that are around us right now and trust that God will be with us. Thank you so much for joining us on today's show. We're very, very grateful for the opportunity to serve the larger faith-driven investor community. Hey, the best way for you to stay connected is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvestor.org. And while you're there, we of course wanna hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you, and it's been very rewarding to see people join the discussion now from all around the world. But it's also very important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your journey, one that you're proud of and one that you'll share with others. This podcast, it wouldn't be possible without the help from many of our friends, executive producer, Justin Foreman, program director, Johnny Wills, music by Carl Kegwell. You can see and hear more of his work at summerdregs.com and audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. Mm-hmm.